0: Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. So welcome ladies and gentlemen to this special edition of Light Culture Zoom. How did hip hop find a home in fashion? Nice to have these three guests. They're all my friends. They've all been on the podcast in the past and they're all fucking amazing. So I know we're going to have a good time. Each guest is uniquely qualified to talk on this subject and other relevant topics that will undoubtedly come up in the course of our conversation. Racism an ongoing story is very much part of the picture, especially when it comes to getting credit for work done or being recognized for one's achievement or getting paid for laying the foundation for what has become a billion dollar industry. The brilliant exuberance of communities of color and their allies is also part of the picture when it comes to breaking down walls and asserting oneself in the cultural conversation Subway art, skateboarding, hip hop, and yes, even fashion were once small dots on the public landscape, but look at them now. Fat Five Freddy is often cited as a hip hop historian, but I would include a lot more than that. One of the original graffiti artists and still a working artist, his history spans the downtown music and art scenes of Debbie Harry, Keith Haring, and Jean Michel. Basquiat, to Yo! MTV, directing videos and documentaries, and a growing list of awards and accomplishments, too numerous to mention. Fred was the first guest on my show when his doc, The Grass is Greener, played on Netflix. Eli Morgan Gessner is one of those New York City kids who fell in love with graffiti and skateboarding and made his mark at an early age. From his work with two major East Coast skateboard brands, shut, to being a vital part of the founding and visual aesthetic of Zoo York, he's also credited with the introduction of streetwear from his work with Sean Stussy and Russell Simmons of Fat Farm. Opening soon is a documentary he narrates called All the Streets Are Silent, The Convergence of Hip-Hop and Skateboarding, 1987-1997. to Lisa Cortez is a busy producer, director, and documentarian. Before turning to film, Lisa worked in the music business for Def Jam and as a label president at Polygram. Her documentary, Hip-Hop Times Fashion, is the inspiration for this panel, and it looks into the untold story of women and hip-hop especially when it came to establishing the visual identity of the music that conquered the world. Lisa produced the Academy Award-winning Precious and The Apollo, the documentary of the legendary Harlem nightspot. In the thick of the political world, Lisa's documentary All In, The Fight for Democracy with Stacey Abrams, explores the history of voter suppression and is scheduled for release before the elections on Netflix. So, you know, these guys have done a little bit in their young lives. So first, we'll start with Fab. First, happy birthday hey. to my fellow Virgo, yeah. <laughs> Fab Five <laughs> Freddy. Thank you,
1: David. Thank you.
0: I know you've been celebrating madly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was great. The 31st was a a blessed day. You know, I typically, if I have the choice, I like to be traveling, put myself in a different space and place on my birthday. Last year, I went to East Africa for the first time. I was in Ethiopia uh, for a good, a good week or so. But this year, I've been here. so that's. Uh, but it's been great nonetheless.
0: Yeah, Ethiopia probably blocks us also, right? Won't let us in their country either now
1: yeah that's funny it's, it's interesting like we are we're like refugees nobody wants <laughs> it. Wow
0: I want to ask you a big question to what extent did the early graffiti writers care about fashion or how they looked? was that an element of concern or you know taking care of oneself and how one looked at each other
1: uh wow, you know hmm I would say in the era of Graffiti, like real raw New York, you know that foundation thing that happened seventies into the into the eighties when you were really jumping, running through tunnels, in yards. That whole world, um, you were dirty all the time. <laughs> it, was, it was hard to hard to be clean. I'm sure many people here haven't been on the actual train tracks or subway, but what you find is like a fine metal dust, which comes from the wheels and the grinding on the track, so there's a, there's a real layer of dirt everywhere you go, everything you touch, and then with the painting you'd always be splattered paint on fingernails and things like that were just a part of uh that world so not conscious of a look of fashion and all of that stuff just really that was a I guess more of a trait that I recall from that period.
0: So, when did that change? Because when I, you know, we went on a trip together to France uh, with a bus, the, the rap tour. On that trip, for me, I, you know, I was getting to know a bunch of you guys and hanging out in the same hotel rooms and so on. And I noticed some particular attention to, hey, my sneakers, they better be clean.
1: No question. Right? So, at that point in the game, you're <laughs> absolutely right, David. That was the New York City rap tour, not widely known, but that was the first. Of a whole hip hop thing that we were blessed to all be a part of: uh, graffiti painters, uh, break dancers, the Rocksteady Crew, uh, Bambata, DXT, Ramel Z, Futura, Dandy. We were all toward gangers, and, and the Double Dutch breakers. By that point in time, early '80s, as we were converging with people from hip hop that were way more stylish, the beginning rappers, and that general street feel vibe we were all plugged in so that was the beginning of it all so we were definitely conscious of of the, the sneakers keeping them clean what kind of you know the the you know that original like that original stuff that was fashion mm. before we were conscious of fashion as an industry business or any of that it was just like the the looks of the city street looks the name belt buckles the, the press on letters, you would go to like the Delancey Street and get letters and stick them on your sweatshirt. Yeah, that was the beginning of it all.
0: And even then, as I recall, like, uh, you know, with Futura was on the tour as well. And one of the things that they, they all went to the Adidas stores, for example, right, to see the other styles because they didn't have it in the US. So yeah. then they could bring back these colors and styles and be like, oh, look what I got, right?
1: Yes, that was also a major revelation for anybody that was definitely into whatever their brands of sneakers were. The fact that there were brands and colors that had not been released in America and people went bananas to get them on those first trips. We had another trip that you weren't a part of, David, but a, like about no more than a year later, it was the Japanese tour when Wild Style went to Japan with a huge contingent, over 30 people. And uh, we saw things over there as well that people went crazy for, style-wise.
0: So Eli, what about you? Because you're, you know, I'm starting, Fred is, is a little older than Eli. Oh, We're for going, sure. But not just like age here, but also like, you know, because Lisa is very much about today, what's going on, and catching up with uh, giving credit where credit is due. And Eli, you were sort of in the middle there. Mm. And um, so, what do you feel? Did hip hop influence skate, or did skate influence hip hop?
2: Being from New York, it was real different to the whole skateboard thing, but clearly, hip hop fully ended up influencing skateboarding, you know, later on. It kind of slowly leaked its way in. When I, I was a graffiti writer, uh, before I was ever, can you guys hear me?
1: Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: (laughs) I was a graffiti writer, uh, you know, way before I started skateboarding and like looked up to to Fab Five and, and all those guys, they were like my heroes, you know? And, uh, once I got into skateboarding, uh, you know, on the upper West side of New York City, there's a, um that's where the Zoo York crew uh, started, you know, with uh, with Ollie and Futura. Oh, and those were sort of like, there was this weird, from the 1970s, this whole skateboarding and graffiti aspect that was going on in my neighborhood. So I was just trying to, like, I was hanging out, you know, there was a Wings on a Broadway and I would hang out with like the TC5 guys and kind of annoy them. And then um, uh, a lot of the uh, kind of, older guys basically forced me to get a skateboard. They were like, if you want to hang with us, you got to get a skateboard. And that's how I kind of went into skateboarding. And when I first did that, I kind of thought like, A, I was younger than everybody else. I felt like the older guys were forcing me to skateboard. And it wasn't like trick skating at that time. It was kind of still 1970s cruising around type of skateboarding. But then around like 82, 83, 84, I start kept running into guys like Ali Asha, a work of more and myself and uh, Paul Middleman and like all uh, Dante Ross, all these guys wrote graffiti and skateboarded. And there was like a weird, you know, kind of convolution or, or a stew that was going on in that world. But uh, I don't think that existed anywhere, but in New York in the eighties, you know, and it was only, through, you know, the efforts of uh, the, the you know, hip hop becoming more and more popular that skaters started to embrace it and kind of, especially West Coast skaters, because that's where the whole skate game was. But, you know, that was very punk rock and new wave in the 80s. And then slowly, I think Public Enemy was kind of like the first, you know, thing to break through. Also, uh, let's talk about the Beastie Boys, you know, I mean, they, uh, they, they, they were, in their videos in the eighties skateboarding, you know? So I think in New York, there's always been a weird little cycle of that going on. And it just, you know, took years for it to spread out to the rest of the world.
1: And uh, if I could could jump in for, for, for one second, I just want to first ask that film that you narrated, is that the film that David Cole and submarine films
2: is? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yo, I saw a rough cut. It is incredible.
2: Oh! I was, no, no,
1: seriously, I was like, oh my God, what's the name of that, that doc? It's brilliant. I'm good friends with David. In right. fact, I'm, I don't know if you're aware, Mikey Alfred, young Mikey. Yeah. He's a young black. Um, he has this company crew, Illegal Civilization. He came up with Tyler and Odd Future and those sure. guys.
2: Yeah.
1: He was the producer of the film Mid-90s.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I showed the rough, I had the rough cut early in the summer, and he was losing his mind, so that was <laughs> incredible. I just also wanted to add, for, just for, on the tail end of what you said, personally, sure. Glenn Friedman was a yeah. really close friend of mine, and in the mid-'80s, I happened to be in L.A., making an art show. Glenn and I were friends, and Glenn was telling me all about skateboarding. I totally didn't get it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um... I knew the New York guys, seen them skating everywhere around the statue at Astor Place. But when Glenn's uh, the film, he was uh, one of the producers. What, what was that? Uh,
2: um, Dogtown. Dogtown Dog and Z, Z Boys.
1: Boys. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Told the story, totally filled it all in for me. So I yeah. just, to play.
2: I mean, Glenn Freeman. It's a perfect example. I mean, how much skateboarding right into hip hop. I mean, there's punk rock in there too, you know. But yeah. all these things are have, you know, especially in the '80s, it was. Uh, count, it was literally counterculture, you know, and that's uh, something that I talk about a lot now because now, you know, there's uh, there's a monetary aspect to being a skater or being a graffiti writer or going into fashion. When, you know, we were kids, that was a dead end. You were wasting your life if you wanted to go be a graffiti writer or go be a skateboarder, you know. Um, it w- You were just doing because you had a passion. There wasn't like a career path, you know that's now it now that exists exists and it's sort of changed everything for me but you know we talk about this in the documentary
0: yes we will everybody's going <laughs> to go amazing see it i'm sure too. lisa she's also had a documentary you know the remix, amazing yeah which mm-hmm. is really excellent uh, you know she yeah. makes a case for something that's you know not been recognized so it's, it's an important work as well on another level besides just being super entertaining. But one of the things that comes out in that, Lisa, is that the sort of the history of fashion in the African-American community did not start with hip hop, right?
3: Absolutely, (laughs) you know, you gotta put your Sunday go to meeting clothes on. And I think that, you know, from 16, 19 uh, upon our arrival, forced arrival in this country, you know, African-Americans have continuously been taking straw and spinning it into gold. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, our culture is one that it from the source is about adornment. It is about splendor. It is about regalness. And upon finding ourselves here, there's this long tradition of recontextualizing Either what were hand-me-downs or what we were able to create. Um, you know, one of my favorite photographers is, is James Vanderzee, and I love the portraits that he took in his studio um, here in Harlem. Big up Harlem tonight, Hi, yeah. my, friend, my neighbor. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and just showing that Black folks, we we always, you know, let me get my crease, let me tilt my hat, let me. You know show up and shine um it's an extension of our creativity our resilience
0: and our our spirit a great example of that fred and something that i think about as like a real turning point in the history of fashion and we can make the hip-hop connection too but it's your old friend jean-michel basquiat who was a real fashion original and starting with his hair let's go and, and down from there, his famous photo that I'll never forget when he was on the cover of the New York Times magazine, wearing an Armani suit, which in those days, you know, was like 800 bucks or whatever. Everybody, you know, that was fortune. Right. And it was all covered in paint. And, you know, and everyone was like, oh, man, look at that. He's, he's wearing this like Armani suit covered with paint. Ooh. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, I, it was outraged. Look, what's what's wrong with him? What do, you, do you remember that at all?
1: Yeah, I remember it well, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, wait, was, was that the James? Well, well, was that, that James Vanderzee photo? I don't know. I
3: think Zee did the one
1: in the in the chair, which is like looking like he's in the throne. Exactly, it's a classic James Van Der Zee, black and white, and I I'll never forget specifically about that photo, Lisa. I just wanted to add that I was at the Fun Gallery. The day Jean Michel had just had the photo taken, hmm. that for James Van Der Zee, you know, early eighties, and he showed up at the fun gallery, and he was excitedly told me he had just taken this picture, and in the playful kind of way we would, you know, always trying to up, you know, to outdo each other, whatever, you know, in a fun kind of way. I was like, God damn, that is such a great idea! I'm gonna have to get Gordon Parks <laughs> to to take my photo, and. Um, <laughs> But um, No, I remember Jean. you know, just didn't, had a great sense of style. I just want to add, like, particularly, you know, in the way Lisa mentioned with our long history in this country and being able to make do with the little that we've been able to access, that's become, that's been a thing that I recall, which is really where it starts. It's like, like whatever it is whether it's the it's the cheapest item whatever that element that item that becomes hot is how you going to freak it what are you going to do to it what how you going to wear it and then if you pull it off with a certain attitude and the right swagger then people like dominoes they will follow so it was a real organic way styles happen in the streets growing up in Bed-Stuy Brooklyn Harlem in major black neighborhoods, when you just look at the pictures through history, that's really how it how it went down, you know. And so when the music got big, it clearly became and it it got exposed to people across the country and around the world who wanted to jump on board, you know, and follow suit. In order to be that artist that did it, you had to have a hit. People weren't following whatever style you rocked, trying to be different, um, unless if you had a hit. You so if you had a hit record, then, and you was doing something really unique style-wise, then people would follow, follow that lead, which is how it would go down.
0: And you were on Yo! MTV. Uh, you know, MTV obviously had a huge influence on spreading the visual culture, cool making music visual, right? Yes, Lisa?
3: There was a time when, you know, the mainstream was not appreciating the ability that, you know, I see a sister on here with pink hair. Like we take for granted this freedom of expression, which then leads to freedom in other ways of how we can live our lives. And there was a time where there were these artists who, and and in their visual representation, really helped to shift the culture.
1: No, that's really 100% right on point. Like like during the times when, I'll, and then that was the unique thing, of course, David, how we would meet, and so much of this would would really pop off at that time. The attitude of downtown New York, the, the cultural um, dynamics were, were extremely open to any and like everything. And if you brought it to the table in the right kind of way and you had your thing you know, on point, then it was a receptive audience like Paper, who was also one of the first people to, to cover and be very adapt on various street styles going on and other people that were open to this. You know, the East Village Eye actually um, did the first real story that I think constitutes the beginning of hip-hop journalism, but also like that because it covered uh, f- several articles on the culture and Paper did the same thing, the Village Voice, and it helped a lot of this become what it has become, well, obviously, something way bigger than anybody. Yeah,
0: it's nice to get the support in the early days before you know everybody <laughs> else catches on because you know, originally it was a fad, right? Everything's a fad. It's going to go away. All the mainstream people, you know, they don't want to be threatened or challenged. Uh, Eli, in your film, uh, you also have like sort of like a moment in history that kind of uh, personifies what we're talking about, this convergence of cultures and in particular skateboarding and hip hop with regards to the Club Mars. Oh, yeah. And and this party that uh, you were throwing there that, was really the first hip-hop downtown club, right?
2: Well, I mean, as you know, I'm not going to say anything in front of Fab Five Freddy because I'm sure I'll get schooled. (laughs) And there were lots of hip-hop parties. I would go to, you know, pop-up parties here and there and the, um, like at Union Square um, and at Irving Plaza. um, And then, of course, like the world, they had like a crazy hip-hop night. I know Freddy remembers that. And they had the hole in the wall that you'd sneak through into the other abandoned (laughs) building really wild stuff, you know, but the, but as I'm sure he'll attest to, you know, if you went to like a club, like palladium or limelight, you know, the original tunnel, no hip hop, you know, it takes two. That was the only hip hop they were playing and it was just all house music. And because it was dangerous, you know, I've saw my friends get shot at a lot of these places, you know, and there was always a fight breaking out. So there was this whole dynamic of, the criminality or the dangerous aspect of of uh new york city at the time and it was uh you know uh my like brother who i would skateboard and write graffiti with was our dearly departed uh bees Beaz- beasley dominie beasley b79 is what he wrote and he and i had the great opportunity to you know be given the basement of mars to go and, you know, basically make a party for our friends. And the if anyone remembers the basement of Mars, it was just a little tiny basement for 30 people. So that was kind of how we convinced or finagled the owners, uh, Yuki, Watanabe, and of course, uh, uh, you have to help me out here. Uh, Rudolph. 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 Um, yes. Yeah, shout yeah. out to Rudolph. Rudolph. You know, that we were like, yeah, let us do a party here, but we're going to play hip hop. And we, uh, you know, we kind of... Uh, basically snuck around playing hip hop records and had someone watch for them coming downstairs. So we'd put on like a house song. So they weren't thinking that this was a hip hop thing. And then as I say in the, in the documentary, you know, for whatever random event Beasley went and got a microphone and then like out of the bar came, you know, uh, KG from the cold crush brothers just took the microphone and then just turned it into a hip hop party. And then as soon as that energy was there the entire club just wanted to get into this basement and then poof two weeks later they were like go up to the second floor you guys have an entire floor and it just sort of like snowballed and it was because you know not that we did anything genius we were just providing a need there was a need out there and that no one was a uh, uh, you know but you were addressing. into it
0: as yeah. skaters you were into that music right already i
2: think also there was like being skaters People kind of accept you as a juvenile delinquent more so than like, you know, Freddie, we talk about when you were a kid, you write graffiti, you get ink on your hands, you're always filthy, but you kind of just have like a hobo homeless look, you know, (laughs) when you're writing graffiti. And I I know a lot of graffiti writers who would intentionally get dressed up like a homeless guy, so they would be (laughs) ignored and could go write graffiti, you know? But when you are skateboarding, especially in the 80s, you're kind of dirty, you've got neon colors, and you're dragging this skateboard around with you constantly, and there's a symbology there, you know, the symbology.
1: (laughs) I I have to to ask you a question, Eli. Hmm. Are you talking about Beasley with the blonde hair? Of course, that's my brother. Yeah. Man, dude, I am so, I swear that's like watching your film. I'm going to gush on and on and on about it. It, <laughs> still, it was like, oh my God, I didn't, I knew those kids, but I didn't, I wasn't in that scene like that. But, so when you I went. You were in to,
2: awe of you. We were, You're Fab Five
1: Freddy, man. But, but when I did go, you guys had went upstairs. Great to get the backstory. And I met this kid, Beasley, who sadly had cancer and passed away.
2: Yeah, um, way before it's done.
1: Meeting Beasley there. And then I became really close with him towards the end. And uh, now those were special memories. I always remember Q-Tip. What was, I never thought of Mars as a hip-hop club. But what I did remember about the cloud, and your film once again captures this, is um, a crowd that had developed downtown going to... Um, Hotel Amazon, Milky Way, those cool underground outlaw parties that Chuck Crook and Beaver would give, then your spot, obviously now I get it, Mars was like a place where that crook. And I remember that was when me and Q-Tip first began to vibe. Like me and him are still tight. We talk often. And I'm like, yo, I remember me and you used to kick it at Mars. And he's like, yeah. hey, you know, because the whole that whole Native Tongue crew, was they were dropping and they were oh, coming. Oh, yeah. That was where a lot of that energy was was popping off.
2: Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing time. You know, even, listen, I vividly remember you being at the party and being like, Fat Five Freddy's here. And like Q-Tip, and then everyone just kept coming. It was ridiculous, you know? It was like, it, you just made, so, you like lit a spark and then this thing happened that we just sat back, you know? And I'm I'm glad that you remember Beasley and love him. He's what, you oh, know, man. like- So special.
1: And I just wanted to go on top of it. I'm sure everybody would- concur. Like the way you talked about, there was some a dangerous element, some real edgy hood cats that would come to some of these parties. Sometimes things would happen. And it was, it did like a lot of club owners, you know, were maybe scared of the idea that something could happen, but there, there was a race, a unfortunate racial dynamic going on too. It'd be like, yo, not just black kids, but them real hardcore cats. that's about that thug life, some of them. You feel me? Oh, yeah. But um, still, the fact that people like Rudolph and clubs like that happen and they change their views is the kind of heart and and the outlook and courage that made things happen back then. It yeah. wasn't about, you know, I'm doing it because I feel this energy. This is something real. I want the real players in the room. And that's what really ruled a lot of what became hot club-wise downtown. It wasn't about just because you had a lot of money to go buy a lot of bottles, you know what I'm saying? You get in. <laughs> it wasn't about that, so I appreciate mm-hmm. that energy. Yeah, yeah Li- I wish it was
0: Lisa, I, I wanted to ask Lisa, because she was actually involved in a real moment of fashion history, wasn't it? Was that like the Adidas with uh, Run DMC and, and negotiating <laughs> that deal?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um So, you know, I was an American studies major, and I was, I've always been interested in cultural trends and who sets them. And so when I arrived at the management company Rush and Def Jam, because, you know, I, I got to work for both for $200 a week and no health insurance, um, but uh, I, I was assigned to work with Houdini you know, and Houdini was quite stylish with the gaucho hats and the leather pants. (laughs) And so I actually wrote a letter to Fila. um, And I was like, you should give them an endorsement deal. They have a song called Do the Feel.'" And they wrote me a letter back and they were like, well, we tried supporting artists like Sheena Easton and it did work. (laughs) And I wrote them back. Like, I was like, no, we ain't talking about the same audience, you know, and I actually have found this letter and one day I I will share it, but I have always seen the importance of us as trendsetters and our ability to affect sales, not only here, but when, you know, we would tour in the UK and uh, around the world with the artists run the beasties LL, you know, all of them, I, you know, kids would come and tell us these stories of like, You know, they had their cousin who lives in Brooklyn who brought them, you know, the latest whatever over. And it was, it just, I was always so impressed how things traveled. So there's a guy named Angelo Anastasio from Adidas. Um, He found out what was going on with... My Adidas and um you know which was on the Raising Hell album and whenever the guys would perform it they'd take off their shoes the kids in the audience would they people would hold their Adidas up and um start it and he got it he saw what this marriage could be of this endorsement deal but you know Adidas at that time you know was owned by this German company who really was not feeling knowing what this was about And um, there were a lot of you know letters that went and things that went back and forth, giving stats, contextualizing things, so that it would be understood the like not only the importance but the importance of writing a real check for (laughs) this relationship. Um, And of course, I I always see that as really setting the whole kind of artist and um, brand endorsement waterfall off you know things that really took off from there um, I, I do want to give a shout out to my sister April Walker who has joined us oh yeah great because uh, I
0: was just wanted you to uh, talk about her I wanted you to talk about April and Misha and, and I
3: also want to give a, a big <laughs> shout, a shout out to Vicky Toback and you know if you all don't have her incredible book Contact High, all y'all who are on here you know I'm going to take a I'm going to take a break I'm taking vape for
4: <laughs>
3: for Vicky, oh, and I'm taking another one <laughs> for April, <laughs> oh. um, and and Daniel, Daniel with the Durban. You know, we need to connect because you know I like the the Durban that works for me. Ah, dropping that strings. Lisa's on top of her game. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yo, Freddie, I'm up, I'm up here in the chat. It's live in the chat.
1: I see it's You, like, you gotta, Yeah, I got the chat open, but I'm like, focus, come look now. I love, wait, Lisa, I'm sorry. What is that painting behind you? That painting is amazing, Lisa.
3: It is from uh, a brother in Wilmington, Delaware. And he's done this whole steer- series of black women in renaissance settings. Wow. Have come from his dreams, which I believe came from a reality because, you know, we were there, you know, we had pearls and ruffs on yeah. and, you know, we're influencing the great poets and scientists and probably were the real great poets and scientists who were not getting our proper respect.
1: You know, you know, I hosted this documentary called A Fresh Guide to Florence with Fab Five Freddy where I went to Florence and <laughs> Venice to look at uh, the history of us depicted in significant Renaissance works of art. Very little scholarship. Um, so I'd like to send you, make sure that you get to see that.
5: Can Me? I see it too?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's no,
3: and I'm going to start lying and telling people, this is 15th century, uh, some 15th century Florida shit. That must sell it for a lot of money, and I could buy the real
0: shit. <laughs> there you go. But then That's it is it. the real shit, so you already it got is. it. Yeah, so please, you please do share. Please do share, <laughs> share, Fred. So wait, tell us about April and, and Misha yeah. and the role of these important women in you know the spreading the visual culture that is so, so much a big part of
1: the whole history hip-hop legacy. April, April Walker is like the Coco Chanel of this, of this hip-hop urban fashion shit. Don't get it twisted, goddammit. <laughs> Walker wear shit. What?
3: So I'm going to set a, set it up, and April. then I'm going to pass the mic to April because I believe when you have the, the architects here, as opposed to me talking about, I'd love for her to share her continuing philosophy and aesthetic with everyone who's, who's on here. I I mean, you know, like there's been a lot of incredible hip hop docs. I'm really looking forward, Eli, to seeing what you've got. And, um, but I often find that, you know, women's stories, who behind the scenes For sure. have not been represented. And as a woman who was there and who worked with great people like, you know, Monica Lynch, Carol Lewis, Ann Carly, Heidi Smith, you know, I could go on. There's a bunch of, you know, Jeanette Beckman and her documentation in every area of women have were there at seminal moments in hip hop history starting in 1973 at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, Cindy Campbell, she threw the party. And huh. so with the remix, the, 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 the angle was to really to look at, to look at fashion, about how the snake eats its tail, about appropriation, and to really kind of establish on the timeline the creativity and lasting innovation of people like Misa Hilton, who worked with Mary J. Blige and Little Kim, and April Walker. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, I mean, we had a limited amount of time to, to go into depth, but i really appreciate what – April and, and Misa and, and our, our allies like Dapper Dan gave us in, in telling this important part of the history. But I, I want to pass the mic to, to April um, because um,
5: she's here and she's incredible.
0: Hi, April. Oh, I
5: can't even come behind that intro. Thank you so <laughs> much. So, and I want to thank you, Lisa, for just sharing your light with the documentary because it really is an important story and it just it touches on culture and, and and culture shifters. And a lot of times women are not on the spotlight and we are behind the scenes. But um, when we have male counterparts, often we we tend to, to, the lines get laid and you don't hear about us as much. So it means everything. Um, and, and just for, for everyone to know, I've been getting great feedback from all over the world of people who just never knew. So it's <clears> great. It's great. But what's up, you guys? What's going on? I got a bunch of culture people on this <laughs> Zoom. And I'm just jumping in. I'm a little late. So I'm sorry about the, the lateness. But I, I just um I do what I love and I I work from here. I work from the heart. I fell in love with hip hop a, a long time ago in the 80s in 1987. I started my first shop in 86. I started out of the house. It became a business custom shop called Fashion and Effect. And from Fashion and Effect, I transcended into a brand, one of the first brands, urban streetwear, as they say, um, called Walker Wear. And I was the first woman in that male-dominated category. And we, we became a trailblazer, basically. Um, but it all stemmed from me believing in hip-hop with everything and, and the music led, like the music, the spirit. And that spirit in the 80s was different because the spirit in the, of hip-hop in the 80s for me, I can remember going to the Madison Square Garden and seeing Fresh Fest and seeing Run DMC on the stage and feeling like everything I'd ever learned about Dress for Success was a lie. And I uh-huh. wanted it in right then, you know, I was just like, I'm done, I'm gonna figure this out. My father was in the music business. So I watched him dance his own beat. And I wasn't afraid to try something different. And it was just that love affair um, with music and fashion and that fusion together that gave me the function to start and listening and seeing that this hip hop thing was going to be here to stay and it was bigger than all of us. And how am I going to create something out of what I already love, which was the music. The fashion wasn't really there. We were, yeah, we were bleaching our jeans and tearing up our stuff, but there was nothing in the store that we could buy at that time that represented us. So that was a lane I saw, and that's how the beginning of Walkerware became. And from that, it just, it was energy feeding energy. Biggie was from around my way. Um, He was one of my first customers with the shop and we grew from there. And it's just like a domino effect. Um, If you have some good product, people talk. And and thankfully, it happened that way.
0: Do you remember what was the first item of clothes that you felt like was hip hop or inspired by or you creating to fit the music, the mood, the people?
5: I was talking about that today. We started with Velour sweatsuits in in the shop. That was a big part of our thing with bucket hats and velour sweatsuits, custom, but we mixed. <laughs> so we would mix. Um, Willie Smith was a big, oh. I loved Willie Smith. So he used to mix uh, patterns and fabrics and all of that. So I took that inspiration and I put that in sportswear in the beginning with walker wear. So I would take like velour, you'd have plain, I'd color block it or I'd add stripes with another piece, you know, something that. You wouldn't typically see and I'd flip it in that way um, or create just like an accent with a belt of uh, a solid bucket hat. But if you if you tipped up the front, if you bent up the front, you'd see it had a pattern, stuff like that. You know, like if you look at Crossover's video um, with PPMD, um, that was like we were mixing. That's all denim, but then it's mixed with velour and some of that, you know, like we did a lot of stuff like that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Dapper Dan earlier. And, you know, to me, is one of the great stories of someone getting recognized, you know, getting paid back in a way.
5: He was a great inspiration for me.
0: Yeah, what was he doing then when you first, like, uh, you know, say he was an inspiration? Where did you see him? At, on on 125th Street or where?
5: On 125th Street. Me and my girls, we went to, I was in college at that time at New Falls. And we went to Apollo, the amateur night at the Apollo and after we went over to see Dapper Dan, somebody was buying something in our crew and I I never, it was late at night and it was just everything. It was like uh, fabric <laughs> everywhere, a lot of energy, a lot of people in there and I was just mesmerized was like this is so smart. It's late at night. It's when everybody hangs out in New York City, you know, and just the energy was hip hop and they were making at that time stuff that Gucci wasn't making but better than Gucci you know what I mean so it was like I want in like I want to do this but for my people in Brooklyn and Harlem were very different so Mm -hmm. it wasn't the same you know the boroughs was really different at that time because we didn't have MTV then so it was just all different so we wanted to make at first we would Thinking about Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, Fred, did you have early experience with Dapper Dan too? Or what was that encounter like? And to describe the scene of what it was like at his shop at like 12 or 1 a.m. or whatever it was. <laughs> 4 a.m.
1: <laughs> well, I guess it was, it was just like what what April just said. Um, so it was interesting for me because up until the time of Yo! MTV Raps happening, which was in uh, 1988, um, and I was totally downtown. Like, I was aware of hip-hop, of course, but my whole aesthetic was a very downtown. You know, I'm making paintings. I'm in my studio. Like, I wasn't as paint splattered as my man Jean, but my whole aesthetic... Mm-hmm. was not like what a hip-hop fashion aesthetic was about to be. So when the Yo! MTV Raps happened, I knew I had to like, oh man, I got to step my game up because <laughs> I might wear black all day, every day, all week. You know how we went downtown. It was really right. simple. It wasn't really that. And so I had to get with the program, right? So Russell and the Rush officers, they were down. They had come downtown. They were on Elizabeth Street off of Houston. So I swing through there. We would hang out. and. I'm hanging with Run and them and I remember one day we was all hanging and Yarm TV Raps was just about to start jumping off and I'm hanging with Jay, Jam Master Jay and Kane and just a couple of artists and everybody was talking about going to DAP when their royalty check comes in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> Who is this Dap? Like, I didn't know anything. I was like, who's this Dap? I pulled Jay to the side. Jam, I said, Jay, rest in peace. I said, Jay, like, what's up? He said, yo, Freddie, that's Dapper Dan. He's the guy that's doing these credible outfits, you know, with the Louis Vuitton, the Gucci. He was just remixing everything they was doing. And then, boom, I went up and, like, eventually when your TV Raps begins, one of the first shows that we taped is with Dapper Dan. And the shop was just would damn near go 24 hours because Dap was making so many garments, and also customizing the interiors of like, first it would be hustlers, then it was rappers. He'd be doing the interiors of people's cars. It was just, and Dap is just the smoothest, most intelligent, articulate brother. And um, it was a nonstop, extremely unique thing that was going on and blowing up at that time, uh, because the you know some of the legendary albums that came out. Uh, most almost everybody had on Dapper Dan, even KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions, and and the leather jackets for Salt and Pepper. Those were Dapper Dan, and uh, he's really a cut and sew maestro, like in a serious fashion way. You know, great guy. Yeah.
0: So everyone, this has been a really great conversation. Does anyone want to ask a question? Just jump in.
4: So I just want to chime in. We've been chatting away. Uh, Jeremy um, Hecht, who's on the call with uh, Hip Hop DX, uh, he is responsible for creating a lot of their video content with some of today's biggest rap artists, um, today and yesterday's rap artists. So he has a question. And then after that, um, the lovely Ashley Scarbo wants to chime in with the question as well.
2: First of all, thank
1: you for the intro. And uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be on this call with so many legendary people. Like, just hearing those stories, like, I'm imagining what it must've been like to live it live. Um, so I appreciate you guys even having me on the call, but I was wondering for all of you guys, um, is there an outfit or a moment within hip hop that you recall being like so inspired by that it changed the way you dressed from there forward or changed your life and inspired you so much? Like I remember, you know, for me, I'm a little younger, but it was like, I needed a pink polo cause Kanye had one or, I needed to wear camo shorts because Wiz Khalifa or whatever it was like, there's all of these moments that change culture forever. Like, do you guys have a specific outfit or person or moment that inspired you from
2: there on forward? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Mine. I, uh, I remember being must've been 1980, 81. And I was at the Lowe's movie theater on like whatever in the eighties on Broadway. And they had video games and you had to like hunt down the video games. And I remember like playing Pac-Man and I was a little kid. And I remember all these like B-Boys came in the door and they all had ski goggles and the Space Invader hats. And some of them had like the Bowie fur hats with the raccoon tail and the like Civil War leather hats and the Levi's and the press. They're just like right out of, you know, and I just remember... First, like, what is going on? Because at least from my, my experience, I never saw, I seen people break dance, but I never saw the outfit and the squad. And I just remember looking at that and being like, is the circus in town? Are they crazy? Like, why are you wearing ski goggles? There's so many questions that just went through my head. And it was important because everyone in the whole movie theater was looking at them. And most of the people thought they were insane you know? And it was not just the outfit, but it was the attitude. It was how they were carrying themselves, which was basically the confidence to dress like this and wear this. And they knew it was cool, even if you didn't even understand what was going on. And I just was just like enamored, like just, you know, sat back and they went and played video games too. And I got like a little scared and was just like watching them like, what is going on? And And then it just sort of, that was like almost the tipping point for the eighties hip hop. Like there was the early graffiti subway cars. But then when that whole kind of like, I would attribute it to the rock steady crew, like does the ski goggles and the mug face, that whole thing. I was just like, this is, this is the shit. Like I was completely blown away, blown away. It was really like just how could someone walk down the street like this? And that's what I want. I don't never got the outfit, but you know, the attitude was always what I aspired to get. Anyone else?
1: (laughs) I was, I want to, I want to, I want to jump in on that because you're hundred percent right. I was going to say like in that whole period, as as I was also referencing earlier, when hip hop style really began to shape break dancers had a, a large influence on that. Because the, the yeah. guys in the breakdance crews, they would dress in a real cool way with the track suits. And then and then a, a lot of the breakdance kids also, like those, did graph, drew, yeah. drew those classic B-boy characters, which exaggerated those classic looks. And they emphasized that. And that was really um, important. But I guess also coming out of that period, the first important rappers all had clear, definitive styles, most of them, along with making music that was really original and having a unique style. That has obviously changed. But back at that point, like, the the looks of Run DMC, like, in the black leather, the hats, the Adidas, uh, you know, and then Big Daddy Kane having a smooth, kind of iconic look, dancing and still being the hardest cat, you know, in the mix. It was just really unique. Slick Rick style to me was always oh God,
2: really
1: uniquely yeah. fantastic. Swagger beyond description with the jewelry, mm-hmm. the furs. And I seen Slick from the beginning uh, just really be that character. So that was also really quite interesting when to be unique and, and stylish was a mandate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: now it. everyone copies everybody else. Exactly. Everyone Now it's like, oh, this guy, this worked for that guy. I got to go get the same outfit and do the same haircut. Where did
0: you get that? Uh, On Instagram. Yeah, I want that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that was sort of key for me because now, you know, there's completely, you know, there's fashion lines and it goes all the way to Adidas to Louis Vuitton. And it's, you know, we got to get the material and this is the look. But everything where hip hop comes from and probably, you know, to, to even go back further is... You know, you needed to cobble together the look. You know, no one was. There's no brand that was making the. You know, the, right. the, the, the full outfit that you could exactly. order online. You had to know them, so. where to go. What <laughs> store had this? And that was like kind of part of the the art artistry of it you'd see somebody with like that particular jacket or those sneakers or that you know where did you get that I went down to Delancey Street and they're gonna put the letters on the belt buckle don't tell anybody you know and it was this weird (laughs) sort of like you know underground uh, communication you know hub of where to put the look together you know even Madonna That whole kind of look was like, where did she find that, you know? And it was like traveling around your city trying to get the pieces to get the look. Now (laughs) that has evolved into the whole line, you know? Now the runway show happens and all the colors match and all that, you know? But But it was...
3: That's a part of why we love New York so, because one would have to travel all over to to find these different accessories. I remember this one person would tell me where she got stuff, but everybody else, she would say, oh, you know, you gotta go out to Coney Island and there's this little teeny store and it's only open for two hours and there was no fucking store that was yeah. there, you know? But she was my favorite person because she, she'd she be like, okay, Lisa, it's like two blocks from here. And, and I think, you know, as, as a woman in hip hop, I really loved when that moment came where I could take my tracksuit and put on my mini skirt and get a little trashy vaudeville number with <laughs> ripped, you know, um, stockings and Doc Martens and a bustier, you know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. like, because that, what was, what was going on, it was going on so effortlessly um, and it was going on from dis- a place of discovery and, and, and with no kind of rules that you can't, mix this with that, it was just like, does this feel good? Does it make me feel strong and sexy and owning my voice? And I so appreciate like, you know, what, when I look at the evolution of, of Mary J. Blige and, and, you know, what Misa did with her, it really allowed us who might've dressed a little bit like a tomboy to, you know, get our sexiness on and find a way to still be hip hop.
2: Yeah, Lisa.
5: So we have another question? I just was going to say that I'm going to shout out Patra and Salt and Pepper right now mm. because I think they were catalysts for that sexy moment in hip-hop of saying we could dress this way and we could be independent women and strong but we can take off the baggy clothes and do the cat suits or whatever we want to do the fishnets and still be like, let's talk about sex. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was, it was a pivotal moment in hip hop even from hey, the fashion hey, standpoint. Hey.
2: Yes. Queen of the dance hall. Yeah.
4: Awesome. So um, Ashley um, Scarbo owns an indie uh, fashion magazine and she has a question. So Ashley, go ahead and jump on girl. Sure. Thank you so much. Again, um, Sonia, thank you so much for
6: adding me at the last minute. I piggy back and echo with the last <laughs> words. I am like ridiculously thrilled to be here. Uh, um, you know, I'm somewhat a newbie in fashion. As she said, I own a... Um, digital fashion magazine called Modern Stitches Magazine, and it focuses on vintage and streetwear fashion. And uh, my question is for Lisa, and partially also for April Walker, who I'm also a fan of. Um, I viewed the remix, and um, I just thought it was so inspirational. And I just wanted to know, when was the moment that you realized that this was so timely? it highlighted so many important people such as April April Dapper Dan um Misa Hilton all of these people who paved the way um for the black culture and some of the trends that are still relatable today i just want to know um why you felt it was so timely to release this um this moment in history because now where do we go from here um, as the black culture everything is so um redundant. And I just want to figure
3: out why, why did you feel like it was the right time to release that? I wish I could say it was planned, Ashley. (laughs) I I do. (laughs) And first of all, thank you and congratulations to you. And please put the information in the chat for us so we can all check out and and support. Um, You know, it just turned out that initially it was going to come out in the fall of this year. And um we were able to move the release up, particularly as we went into this intense home viewing time you know with the pandemic and you know I think my the the projects that I work on, I think are always always have an evergreen conversation about black folks culture, resistance creativity. so I would hope that, Anything that I'm working on, there will always be a, a door that is a timely door, you know, for us to to present it to to audiences.
4: Also, Carly is on the line. She's amazing. She just <laughs> published a book, actually, about traveling all over the East Coast, which is, I mean, all Americans can really do right now, which is travel to another state, in our car, and listen to great podcasts, um, but she just did, published her book and is a cannabis writer and travel writer, so I think you first caught my radar because you were writing articles on GQ, and I was like, oh my god, this girl is it, like, what's up? Oh my
7: gosh, you're so nice. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I. so I actually had a question uh, regarding, since this is about uh, both hip-hop culture, which I, by the way, I love the stories, by the way, because when I first moved to New York City, I lived in Clinton Hill and I love being, over- and I knew it was so different than it was back then, but I love hearing about what that energy was like. But in line with that, we've been doing a lot of work with, um, you know, finding out what, I think people were talking about their strains and so forth and what people are smoking. And I was wondering if you guys have any insight to what people were smoking back then. I mean, I feel like that was a big part of it and Oregano. I don't have any familiarity because a lot of that wasn't documented then. So I was curious like were you know sour diesel is kind of like the New York strain now like what was what were people smoking in New York City back then?
0: Whatever they can get their hands on. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
7: I would have
0: Yeah,
1: I kind of I mean we didn't have this thing with all these strains like you would probably a lot of the cannabis available was from Colombia and Mexico. I mean even high times would we have articles with and comprehensive stories about what was available then which was kind of why that magazine was amazing then but um
4: shout so, out John Capetta who's on the call from High Times
1: yeah so i remember i was a fan of that and then and we had Colombian mexicans you know a lot of pot had seeds in it it was oh, yeah. as you went into the 80s when the the good bud from california and uh and then the different names you know skunk and Maui, Maui, you begin to hear these like names and this green pot because the Colombian and Mexican, oftentimes the, the pot wasn't green, it was brown. So it was, you know, different and things began to change and get better.
7: So when, yeah. did, are you guys like weed snobs now? Like, have you like, you know, <laughs> have you shifted your, your focus or do you actually, I have a, a legitimate question. because There's a lot of New Yorkers on here. Sour Diesel, I think, is sort of, like, our local terroir as it is. Like, do we think that there is, like, an official New York City, like, New York State, like, that we should be really having some, like, hometown East Coast pride over? Whoa. Whoa. I mean, there's a lot of California versus New York. I'm just trying to take a stance for New York here.
1: The unfortunate (laughs) thing about cannabis in New York, which uh, which we hope will change sometime soon. Yeah, it's illegal. It's yeah. <laughs> still illegal. So a lot of what we get access to obviously is coming from different places still. And mm-hmm. so that's the unfortunate thing about us, Bill, but that's a great question. Like New York, I'm sure once they change the draconian cannabis laws um, here and across the country, take it off of the schedule, which we hope uh, Kamala can get Biden. If we, you know, make it happen in November, we could get sensible um, and then get be able to have a a strain that represents uh, that New York energy.
7: What is it though, sativa <laughs> or indica? I think sativa. That's Earthies what I don't think. don't have time to chill That's like a California. We're <laughs> yeah. like go oh, we go. California's like the yeah. sun
4: is out and and, we use trees, die, and I'll email them later. <laughs>
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen. Thank awesome. you very much.
2: David, thank you for putting this together. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, man, thank I love you. it. It was
0: awesome. I was had so much fun. Yeah, I hope everybody uh, yeah. else did as well. Yeah, enjoyed
4: it. I think everybody take yourselves off mute and let's give each other a virtual hug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: woo <Woo-hoo. laughs> Fist bumps, fist bumps. <laughs> You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.